One of the biggest news stories so far this year uh, has been the death of pop star David Bowie. It was a massive news event across the world. The BBC News website had the sort of banner coverage that was last seen after the Paris terrorist attacks. The next day, the entire front pages of newspapers were given over to pictures of Bowie. Emotional tributes poured out on social media. People flocked to Brixton where Bowie had been born. There were tears and a sense of real grief. But in some places, it went even further than that. This is what one commentator wrote on the national paper the day Bowie died, and I quote, David Bowie is not dead, nor can he ever be. What he gave to me is forever mine because he formed me. He was my lodestar. In the years when I was trying to become myself, he showed me the endless possibilities. He gave us ideas, ideas above our station, all the ideas and a specific one of life. The stellar idea that we can create ourselves whoever we are. He let us be more than we ever knew possible. There is nothing greater. Nothing. That was Suzanne Moore in The Guardian, but it was replicated across the press and the social media. Now, there's no doubting the enormous and unique contribution that Bowie made to pop music over his whole career. To listen to his songs is to listen to a man supremely gifted and endlessly creative. But I couldn't help wondering, as I witnessed some of the reaction to his death and the expressions of loss and grief that went with it, whether really what was really going on was right. There seemed to be at least the chance that people were placing on David Bowie, the man, an expectation that really no one could reasonably be expected to bear. I found myself asking whether one man could really carry people's hopes, dreams, identity and sense of purpose as Bowie was being asked to? Was it wise to invest so much emotional capital in one human being? The last time I remember asking these questions was when Princess Diana died, and the public grief that followed suggested that many of us had placed significant hopes and expectations in a woman whose story we knew, but whom we had never met. Was that a good thing to do, or was it going to lead to disappointment? Now, I'm not here today to persuade you one way or the other on the significance of David Bowie or Princess Diana or anybody else. We rightly have different and personal responses to these and other prominent people. But I do want to suggest today that we should be wary about investing our hopes and dreams in people who, however good they are, cannot deliver against them. For we will end up being, being disappointed not least because these people will not be around forever. And I do want, in the light of that, for us to consider the claims of someone who can bear the hopes, expectations, and indeed fears for all of us, and who will not disappear. Because this term at Holy Trinity, uh, we're being invited to consider afresh the claims and person of Jesus of Nazareth. Through the pages of a first-century record of his words and his deeds, namely Matthew's Gospel. For in this text, we're going to look afresh at what Jesus did. Not at the songs he recorded or the venues he played, not the important people he met or the clothes he wore. We'll look at the deeds of Jesus, how he healed, how he forgave, how he called, he challenged, and how ultimately he died. For these deeds are the key entries on Jesus' CV. 
And Matthew has included them in his gospel, interspersed with Jesus' teaching that we'll look at next term, to show us both who Jesus is and why he is to be trusted with the hopes and dreams not only of individuals, but also a whole community. Now, today we're just going to look at three short stories from Matthew's Gospel of how Jesus healed three people. A man with leprosy, a centurion's servant, and a good friend's mother-in-law. And it seems to me that Matthew has grouped these three stories together quite deliberately because in them we see a similar set of themes emerging. So instead of kind of working through each story in turn, we're going to look at these three stories from three different perspectives. First of all, we're going to look at how these stories show us Jesus as a man of authority. Secondly, we're going to look at how these stories show us Jesus as a man for all. And thirdly, we're going to look at see how Jesus, they show these stories show us Jesus as a man with a mission and what that mission really was all about. If you're here this morning exploring Christian faith, unsure what you think, just wanting to find out more, I hope you go away this morning with an expanded view of who Jesus is and what his mission is all about. There is no better place to center our exploration of Christian faith than on the person and the work of Jesus himself. But if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, I hope we're going to see in these stories a reminder about why Jesus is to be trusted and why Jesus is the place to locate our hopes and our aspirations. I want to build, if you like, what I said a fortnight ago in our vision talk about what it is to put our roots down. You might remember that picture of a tree in the desert. I talked about the roots going deeper. I want to show why Jesus is the one into whom we can plant our roots because he will not disappoint and because he ultimately he will sustain us in a way that nobody else can. So perhaps you turn with me in your Bibles to page 972 in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 8. Um, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. There's a kind of, um, I guess, pink sort of salmon uh, a batting order that shows you where we're going uh, this morning. Page 972, Matthew chapter 8. First of all, we're going to look at how these three stories show us Jesus as a man of authority. Because it seems to me in all these three stories, they're told in such a way as to show not only that healing happens, which it does, but rather that it happens because of Jesus' authority and intervention. In the first story, there's Jesus healing the man suffering from leprosy, and he just says, I am willing. And Matthew tells us that immediately the man was made clean. In the third story, Jesus just touches the hand of Peter's mother-in-law, and the fever leaves her. But it's in that middle story, the story of the healing of the centurion's servant, where Jesus' authority is demonstrated most fully. Not really in the healing miracle itself, although the servant is healed again immediately after Jesus commands it, but rather in the response of the centurion whose servant is healed. Because this centurion, you see, he understands all about authority. He was a junior officer in the occupying Roman army, there to keep the peace and to bring in the taxes in a sometimes troublesome part of the Roman Empire. And this centurion, he understands all about how authority works. Look with me at verse 9. For I myself am a man under authority, he says, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
The centurion recognizes that if you've got real authority, you only need to say the word and it will be done. And he clearly believes, therefore, that Jesus has authority, which is why he says in verse 8, Lord, I do not deserve you to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. It's an astonishing confession of faith. Just imagine the scene. Here is a Roman centurion with all the trappings of imperial power about him, a tunic, a helmet, a breastplate, a sword, SPQR on him, saying he is Rome in Galilee. Here he is saying, opposite to a Galilean carpenter, you're the one who's really in charge. You're the one who can do something I cannot. Small wonder that the centurion, together with the man suffering from leprosy, both called Jesus Lord, it's a sign of respect, yes, but it's something more. It's a sign that this man in front of them has a power they do not have, that he's in a charge in a way that no one else can be. It's really helpful that Matthew places these stories of Jesus' authority directly after the story of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been teaching his disciples. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches with authority. Now we see him healing with authority. Small wonder that the crowds were following him. He had something that nobody else does. You see, these verses mean we cannot put Jesus in the category of just a wise teacher. You know, Jesus, the teacher of eternal Christian values. Because Matthew presents, and the centurion recognizes Jesus as a man of commanding authority and power with resources no one else has. Now, what are those resources? The resources to bring healing? Yes. Healing of mind and body and soul. But Jesus' authority is broader than that. It's authority to forgive, to strengthen, to bring hope, to reconcile, to give meaning. And I suspect the centurion, although he had all the trappings of power about him that day, recognized the opposite him. There was a man who had authority to do what he could never dream of. I wonder if we'd been bystanders that day, you know, looking at that encounter between the centurion and Jesus. Where would we have seen the power reside? In the obvious place? the weapons, the strength of the centurion, or in the man Jesus who could heal the sick and do so much more? And where will we see power today? Will we see it in generals, in politicians, in media magnates, in celebrities? Or will we see true authority and power in Jesus, the carpenter, but the one who can hold us safe in trouble? Will we see power in Jesus, the one who can give us light in darkness, reconciliation in the midst of bitterness, forgiveness in guilt, hope in despair, and purpose from being lost? You see, Jesus has the power we really need. We aspire to all this power over here. Political power, financial power, moral power. It's not worth a candle. Because Jesus has the power we really need.
I talked on Vision Sunday about being like a tree in the desert and putting deeper roots down into Jesus. Here's one reason why. Because he has the power to offer us things which even the most powerful people in the planet will never be able to do. This episode shows us Jesus as a man of authority. Secondly, these stories show us Jesus as a man for all. Because what's striking about these three healing miracles is that they all involve people who would normally have been seen as outsiders to the historic people of God. There's the man suffering from leprosy. He would have been regarded as spiritually and socially unclean. There's the centurion. He's a Gentile, so outside the historic people of God. And then there's Peter's mother-in-law. She's a woman. Regarded then of lesser social standing and import in a first-century context. And you see, it's not only that Jesus heals them. He also touches them. Matthew's very, very clear about that. Look with me at verse 3. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And again, Peter's, in Peter's house, Jesus touches her hand. You see, Jesus is healing people that others thought beyond the pale. He's including in his mission those who were traditionally excluded. Once again, it it seems to me it's in this middle story with the centurion servant where this is most explored, this time from the lips of Jesus, as he recognizes the centurion's extraordinary faith. Uh, Look what he says afterwards in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now listen, what Jesus is saying is really radical stuff. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven, that final place where all are safe with God as king, is going to be populated by people from beyond the historic boundaries of historic Israel. That's what the East and West reference means. The centurion, he's going to be in. That's the implication. And so will non-Jews, Gentiles, of many different stripes. But many people who had presumed they were going to be in, simply because they'd been brought up in the kingdom and thought that, they would, that that would be enough, they're not going to find a place. I, I suspect this story may have a heck of a lot to Matthew, the gospel writer, as he wrote these words down a few years later. For as we're going to find out in the following chapter, Matthew was himself an outsider a tax collector, colluding with Roman authorities to collect their taxes, derided by his fellow Jews, excluded from parts of society. Matthew was grateful for Jesus' words to the crowd that day because he knew there was not just a place for the centurion, there was a place for him too. But if Jesus' words were encouraging for the centurion and for Matthew, they were profoundly challenging for many in Jesus' audience. Because they worked on the basis that certain people were so beyond the pale that they would never be invited to be part of God's people. Prostitutes, tax collectors were on that list. So were Gentiles of all kinds. To hear that those people were actually invited to be part of God's kingdom was a huge shock. And just as shocking was to hear that the insiders, that they would be excluded, that simply being born in the right town was not enough. 
But you see, Jesus' mission was not just for some, it was for all. Now that was encouraging to some, it was deeply challenging to some. And I wonder which do we need to hear most this morning? Do we need to hear the encouragement or do we need to hear the challenge? Perhaps you need to hear the encouragement that all are invited by Jesus to come to him, to receive his love, and to drink deeply from the wells of life that he offers. Nothing from your past, nothing from your present, excludes you from Jesus inviting you to meet him. You may see yourself as a great sinner. I tell you, join the club. Nothing from your past Nothing from your present excludes you from Jesus inviting you to come to him. But perhaps you need to hear the challenge that Jesus gave that day. Perhaps you need to be here, you need to be challenged by Jesus' concern for the outsider. If we ever think that certain people are not invited to come to Jesus, that they are somehow beyond the pale, we have got it deeply wrong. Now listen, it's widely acknowledged that we are living as a society through a rapid change in the way that our society understands both gender and sexuality. To my mind, it's a more fundamental change than that was experienced during the 1960s. Now, it's also no secret that Christian teaching about holiness and about family life diverges from some of these changes. The Bible, it seems to me, presents an alternative view of what human flourishing looks like that is less exclusively focused on the feelings and the rights of the individual and more about children, family, and society. And that's a challenge because it means there's a gap between what society says and what the Bible says about certain lifestyles and choices, whether that's same-sex marriage or gender reassignment. But let me be very clear about this. However big that gap grows, and it will probably grow bigger, it must never lead you or me to conclude or suggest that there are people beyond God's love and invitation. Because Jesus got the inclusivity agenda long before we did. Yes, when we respond to him, he calls us to bring everything in his lives under his transforming power. But everyone is equally invited. You see, the order is this. This is really important. Jesus invites us. We respond. Jesus calls us to grow in holiness. That's the step. It's that way around. It is not Jesus calls us to grow in holiness. We respond, and when we get good enough, he invites us. It's never that way around. Jesus invites us, we respond, he calls us to grow in holiness. It doesn't matter who we are, for Jesus' invitation is for all. Perhaps we need to hear that challenge of Jesus' concern for the outsider. Perhaps we also need to hear the challenge of Jesus' warning of the risk to the insider. When faith in God and his favour is predicated on something about ourselves, our ethnicity, our church attendance, our moral uprightness, and not on Jesus Christ, we are in real danger. If we think we are somehow qualified, 
to be part of God's kingdom. There's something about us that means we deserve a place there. We've got it badly wrong. If that thing is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a man for all. Do we hear the encouragement in that today? Do we still hear the challenge? These stories show us Jesus as a man of authority. They show us Jesus as a man for all. Finally, they show us Jesus as a man with a mission. Because actually, these three stories confront us with a question about Jesus. Is what is narrated here actually what Jesus came to do? Was healing people Jesus' ultimate goal, or was there something more? Now, as is often the case in Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to see this a number of times over the next few months, Matthew helps us by supplying a quote from the Old Testament that kind of gives a richer understanding of what Jesus is about. Look with me at verse 17. This is the quote. You'll find this a lot. This phrase, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. We'll have that a few times in Matthew's Gospel. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, that's a quote from Isaiah, chapter 53. It was written about 700 years before Jesus, which described the whole chapter, what the Messiah, the the, the suffering servant, would be about. And Matthew knew his Old Testament off by heart. He saw in those verses a kind of hint at the way in which Messiah would take people's diseases onto himself. But I'm sure that in quoting just that snippet from Isaiah 53... Matthew wants us to think more generally about Isaiah 53 as well. It's almost as if just by quoting those few phrases, Matthew wants to kind of ring alarm bells in the reader's minds about what does Isaiah 53, remember, say about the Messiah? So so let's go back to Isaiah 53. Keep your finger in Matthew 8 and come back with me to Isaiah 53 on page 740 in your Bibles. Just keep a finger. Let's have a look at that passage from which Matthew quotes Page 740, Isaiah 53. So verse 4 is what Matthew quotes. Let's look at how the passage continues in verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see what Matthew's saying? There's something much deeper going on here than simply making people's illnesses go away. Isaiah is looking forward to a time when the suffering servant will take on himself all the brokenness of our world, of which sickness is but a sign. You see, the key point is this that we need to get in our heads. Sickness is not really what's wrong with us. Sickness is not really what's wrong with us. I mean, it is wrong with us. It matters, and God calls us and those who are called to be part of his healing work. But beneath that is something else going on. We are broken in a more fundamental way than our bodies not working properly. What's wrong is what Isaiah says, that all of us are like sheep who have gone astray from a shepherd. We have turned our own way and done what is right in our own eyes. And so we are apart from God, lost without him, and unable to find our way home blocked by the sin 
of our own making. Now, that is not a view you will hear a lot in our world today. Everything in our culture says you are okay exactly as you are. Whatever you feel, that's great. Being told that we are not okay as we are, that there is something wrong with each one of us in our relation to God, to the God who made us, is not popular. But I think it offers a much more convincing narrative of ourselves and actually what's wrong with our world, as Rosie prayed for earlier on. But the good news is, the fact that we're broken is not the end of the story. For Isaiah sees what that Messiah will all be about. Look with me again at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see, this Messiah will not just heal diseases. This Messiah will forgive sins. This Messiah will bring peace with God. And all through a death like a lamb to a slaughter. You see, there's a reason why Matthew's gospel does not finish at chapter 8. Not just because he'd commissioned to write a certain number of words for the publisher. That's not the reason. Healing sickness is not really and ultimately what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to take on himself not our sicknesses, but our sin by dying on the cross. I think that explains, by the way, why Jesus orders the man with leprosy not to tell anyone. Jesus does not want to get known and therefore mobbed as simply a miracle worker. He wants to complete his mission, which will finish not in the northern region of Galilee, but far in the south in Jerusalem, on a hill called Golgotha. Jesus, you see, is a man with a mission. These healings are but a sign of that deeper mission that he's about. So why go deeper in Jesus Christ? Because I want to say that Jesus offers us something that even somebody as gifted as David Bowie never can. Jesus has the power and the authority to offer us what we really long for, for deep healing, for true purpose, and for lasting meaning. Jesus welcomes all, all to follow him. Whatever our past, and whatever our present, so he can change our future. And Jesus completed his mission by dying on a cross so that wandering sinners such as you and me could come back to a gracious God. The question is this. Will we make the step which the centurion made that day in Capernaum and place our trust, our confidence, and our hope Not in the things that qualify us, however impressive they may look, but in the power, in the grace, and in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a choice. Are we going to trust in ourselves and the power that we might receive? Or are we going to trust in Jesus Christ? And Centurion had that choice that day. He had lots of reason to trust in himself. He was the representative of the most powerful nation on earth. And yet he chose to say to Jesus, only say the word, and my servant will be healed. It may be that today you need to make that choice for the first time, that you want to place your trust in Jesus Christ as the one who has authority, who invites you, and who died for you.
You can do that this morning for the first time by saying three things to Jesus. He involves saying, sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry that I have turned away from you, Lord, and that I have been like a sheep that has wandered astray. Thank you that the Messiah came to take on himself my sin and please come into my life and help me live with you as Lord. If you've never made that response today, you can do it. But maybe you need to revisit that response today. That perhaps all the things that attract you are the power of this world. And it seems so much worth working for. But perhaps you need to say again, I'm going to trust and I'm going to find my hope not in any man or in any system or in any bank balance but in the Lord Jesus Christ.